Hi guys. Hi. I'm Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report. Spooky. Spooky. We're trying to improve our spooky voices. (laughs) Spooky. (laughs) We hope you guys are having a good week this week, as always. Yeah, we've been having a really good week, but it's been very busy. Absolutely. We are actually recording today's case a few days early, because on the 28th, when this episode airs, we will be in Houston, Texas for yeah. day one of Anime Mid-City. We'll I'm be, so excited. We will be risking a heat stroke in the barrenness of Texas in our cosplays, and I'm so excited. I'm sure that it's it's got to have good air conditioning, I hope. But even if it doesn't, know that if I do, in fact, have a heat stroke and my Akatsuki cloak, that I'm happy. Like, leave me be. Like, save yourself. <laughs> like, so, literally, just get out of the heat. Leave me be. I'm happy. I've lived life. You know, it's good. <laughs> well, would you say, leave me be? Oh, my Naruto? fucking God. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. I see what you did there. Uh, pain, well, Nagato Uzumaki, technically, is from the hidden rain village but you know i still see what you did there yeah i very much appreciate it so gage before we start this case i need help from everyone so all of our listeners and you too i need name suggestions uh, about a week ago i picked me up a little house plant i wasn't sure it was gonna make it because i'm a little rusty on the green thumb okay <laughs> you've done good it hasn't died so yes it hasn't died. it's flourishing in fact it has shot up two new sprouts on the sides so it's doing very well but if you follow us on our social medias... Which we announce at the end. Yes, exactly. So hit us up on our social medias and drop a name. We would love to hear your succulent name suggestions. Yes. When we get back from Anime Matsuri, I am going to take all of the name suggestions, put them in a little bowl, shake it up really good, and I will randomly take one of your suggestions. Yes, we will place the crown on thine succulent. <laughs> So I'm actually really excited to hear your case. Yeah, it's going to be. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and forewarn. I'm taking us straight to the pits of hell for this one. I feel like it's 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 rough. Oh, oh God! Without further ado, Gage is going to tell his story. Yay! We're going to hell. So, for my case this week, I'm going to be telling you guys about Edmund Kemper. This mm. guy scares the shit out of me, for sure. Ooh. Uh, he was literally six foot fucking nine. He has a very high genius level IQ. Like, he's extremely smart. He's charming. And he's absolutely a fucking sociopath and a psychopath of the highest caliber. Like, Edmund Kemper was fucking beyond. Ooh. Like, beyond. Uh, he later came to be known as the co-ed killer, or the co-ed butcher. Okay. He is a fucking character. Um, so, yeah. Pretty intense shit, you guys. So, I kind of want to open up the episode by talking about his parents and kind of like his early life a bit. Okay. Um, I really just want to paint a picture for you. I know a lot of people kind of don't like hearing the details of like, when you go into like, 
you know, the whole story. I like to hear everything. I want to know where they came from, how they grew up, what things contributed, what things did it. I just right. like knowing everything. I thought that maybe some of you would appreciate that as well. Edmund Kemper's just whole story. It's just a lot. And his childhood was fucked. Oh, oh, my God. Like, he's one of the cases that if you really wanted to have the argument of nature versus nurture, okay, you could really go to town on that concept with this case because it's just like, fuck. Like, as I tell all of this, you're just going to see a scene slowly painting itself, basically. Okay. I'm ready. So Edmund Emil Kemper III was born to his parents, Clarnell Kemper and Edmund Emil Kemper II, on December 18th, 1948 in Burbank, California. Edmund was the middle child. He had an older sister named Susan. She was five years older, and he also had one younger sister named Alan, like A-L-L-Y-N. It's actually kind of cute, but uh, oh. yeah, she was two years younger. Edmund's father was a World War II veteran who had became an electrician working with atomic energy at Pacific Proving Grounds. He was a really, really, really smart guy. He described his marriage to his wife, Clarnell, though, as really damaging and, like, absent of compassion or oh, love. Oh, God. Uh, there's even a famous quote from him, literally, that says, quote, Suicide missions, wartime, and later atomic bomb testing were nothing compared to living with Clarnell, end quote. Uh, so, like, they oh were, <laughs> yeah, they were not happy with one another, like, at all. This was very, like, known inf information. So, Clarnell, as you can probably fucking imagine, uh, by that last quote that I gave you, she was not a nice woman, like, at all. She was not. God. She was an alcoholic, and she had a really, really extreme tendency to take her anger and her frustrations out on her children and her husband, even in some really awful ways. She especially targeted Edmund, though. Edmund would later say in his own words that he believed his mother treated him the way that she did because he reminded her of his father. So, you know, keep that in mind. Like, Edmund's mother was fucking horrible, and she definitely, definitely targeted him. Like, she took a lot of this out on him. God, I hate that. Clarnell was extremely emotionally and verbally abusive to her children and her husband. She never really got physical with anyone, but the consistent onslaught of emotional and verbal abuse was just as fucking bad. She loved belittling her husband for things like his job, the way he looked and dressed, like literally just everything. It's like she had this complex that nothing was good enough for her, no matter who it was or what it was. The belittling and the various other forms of emotional abuse definitely also extended entirely to Edmund. Now, get this shit, because it's Extreme. She okay. even went to the extremes of not wanting to coddle him or being tender or gentle with him in any way, shape, or form because she, quote, didn't want to turn him into a queer, end quote. Oh, my God. Like, what the fuck kind of shit is that? If that doesn't tell you the kind a mom she is. So, you know, we're painting a picture slowly here. Oh, my God. Now, this is sad, but Clarnell at one point started locking Edmund in the basement of her house at night while everyone else slept upstairs. He was like eight or nine years old. She said that her reasoning for this was because she felt that if she didn't do this, that he would harm one of his sisters, which I guess this is kind of a gray area because you kind of look at what he turned into later. And it's like, mm, I don't know, Clarnell, maybe did you see something? Did you not? I don't know. But the other point to that is Edmund the child is not Edmund the homicidal maniac. Okay. You know what I'm saying? It's like... Yeah. He went from being the victim to the abuser, basically. Uh, pretty much. Like, again, I mentioned the whole nature versus nurture thing. And no, I'm in no fucking way trying to defend because this man was fucking evil. He was a fucking monster. I'm not denying that. Uh, there's plenty of people who have less than pleasant childhoods and they don't grow up to, you know, do the shit that Edmund Kemper did. But yeah. I also just remind that point that Edmund the child is not Edmund the homicidal maniac you know so you can feel sorry for the child and look at these things and see how it 
contributed because honestly, I'm not Edmund. I can't speak on behalf of, you know, what's in his brain, but I would imagine if he didn't endure this, Mm -hmm. I don't know. He may have went a different fucking way. I mean, clearly he may may have already had it inside of him, but at the same time, it's like what he went through was extreme. Yeah. Like extreme. And as I tell the case later, you'll see how much of a, like a prevalent part his mother plays in like literally all of this, just him in general. So Edmund described this experience of him being basically confided to the basement at night as a child. Uh, He said it was very rough for him. The basement was practically empty with a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Like, you know, in a fucking horror movie basement, like that's basically what it was. He would have to run down the stairs because you couldn't turn on a light switch. You would have to go downstairs into the dark all the way to that one light bulb and turn it on. So he would describe that he literally had to just scramble and run out of just being scared shitless to get to the light as fast as he could. And then he was down there all night, locked down there. He was like eight or nine years old. Jesus. Edmund went on to say that he really didn't understand why he had to be sent down to the basement while everyone else got to sleep upstairs in their room in their beds. But I do have some audio here because Edmund Kemper definitely was one of the ones that loved to talk. And there's plenty of recorded, documented audio from him. But uh, I'll actually let him, in his own words, describe this experience for us. Time of the evening, the family left the center room, the, the living room of the house. My mother and my sisters, or my sisters themselves, would go up to bed upstairs, where I used to go to bed upstairs. I had to go down to the basement. And an eight-year-old child had a tough time differentiating the reason in that. Why am I going to the basement? I'm going to hell or going to heaven. Uh, Earth is the living room. I'm going down to deal with demons and monsters and ghosts and all the things that scare me. They don't have to. That is really heartbreaking to listen to from, like, the victim of abuse, obviously. Yeah, him saying that in his own words, it's, like, sad, it's chilling, it's, like, it's horrific. Yeah, but I'm not trying to, you know, call him a victim. The child was. Yeah, him, as again, Edmund the child is not Edmund the serial killer, so you definitely can, and right, Grace, feel sorry for him, because I definitely do as a child. Like, nobody deserves that, and it definitely fucked him up pretty clearly, as you're going to see, like, his mother... And what he encountered with his mother is a very huge part of Edmund Kemper and his pathology. So That's really sad. Very, very early on, Edmund started displaying some very dark and bizarre behavior, as well as developing some pretty intense fantasies connecting sex, violence, and death. Okay. His younger sister, Alan, said that he started decapitating and cutting the hands off of her dolls. Ooh. And he would also often ask his sisters to play a game with him that he called Gas Chamber. Ew. Which I've never heard of that one. I don't know about y'all, but I don't think I played that. No, I'm good. I've <laughs> uh, never played that. But as a basically, kid. basically, he would blindfold himself, and he would have his sisters tie his hands like behind his back to the chair with like a cord or something, and then he would have his sisters act as the gas man, and they would basically pretend to flip a switch, and he would pretend to writhe in agony until he died. Oh, my God. Alan said that this game really, really, really scared her and made her uncomfortable, like, understandably. It's, like, some really weird shit. Like, this kind of stuff started manifesting extremely early with Edmund. Yeah. When Edmund was around 10, he had gotten mad at the family cat. So, get this shit. He's 10 years old. He buried the cat alive. And then a few days later, went and dug up its body and decapitated it with a bayonet that he had gotten from his dad. Uh, then he wrapped up the body and the head of this cat in his bathrobe, put it into a suitcase, and then put it into uh, his closet. Ew, ew. He was 10. 
And his mother, fucking Clarnell, actually was the one that found the suitcase uh, after Edmund had killed the cat. Like, she discovered everything. And she's just, you know, like, can you just get this out of the house, please? Like, she literally didn't look into it. You know, something's clearly fucking wrong. There had to have been something, like, mentally wrong. Like, your 10-year-old buried a cat alive and then went back and decapitated it with a fucking bayonet that he stole from his dad. He was 10. That's like, what the fuck, Clarnell? Like, how did no one think to help him or to look any further into what he was doing? I just think that's fucking insane. Because, you know, like most people who grow up to become killers, they display that tendency of killing and or harming animals early on. And it's a huge fucking red flag. So here he is, nine or ten, and he's already wanting to play gas chamber and he's fucking decapitating house pets. God, man. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, something was wrong. It's awful. Like, fuck you, Clarnell. That hasn't... This is going to be the whole topic of this case. Fuck you, Clarnell. But uh, (laughs) Edmund had also... I mean, don't get me wrong. Later on, it definitely evolves into, oh, fuck you too, Edmund. But for right now, fuck you, Clarnell. (laughs) (laughs) So, Edmund had also developed a crush on his second grade teacher. Mm -hmm. He started stalking her while, while carrying his dad's bayonet. He was in second grade. I couldn't find much on the specifics or the severity of what this stalking accusation was, but I'm assuming he was just like following her places. Some sources that I read say that he actually got caught lurking around outside of her house. So I mean, okay, Chucky, go off. Like, right? I'm telling you, he's in second grade. Like, that's fucking scary. Like I stated earlier, something was clearly not fucking right here, and nobody literally did anything. Right. Nobody did anything. Uh, there's even this one instance talking about this crush that he had on his teacher, in which I think it was his younger sister, Alan, who was, like, picking on him about it and, like, yeah. teasing him about it. And she was, like, asking him, you know, like, hey, Edmund, like, don't you want to kiss her? Do you want to kiss her? You know, teasing him. And his response to this, I think he was nine or ten. I couldn't read for exact, but he was young, like, way, way young. His okay. exact response was, quote, Oh, no, I can't kiss her, because if I did that, I'd have to kill her first. Oh, okay. I know you said that we were going to hell, but like... Oh, I told you this is going to be bad. It's bad. (laughs) I have a feeling we haven't even like really stuck our foot in the water yet. Uh, absolutely not. It's, it's like really fucking bad. Oh God. Like Chicago Ripper crew bad or. Honestly. Yeah. Okay. In, in, a, in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's on that caliber for gotcha. sure. Gotcha. So in the year 1957, Edmund's father left the family. He had pretty much reached the point of, you know, he just said, fuck the shit. I can't handle it anymore. Oh, well, fuck this. I mean, yeah, pretty much. And he divorced Clarnell and he moved out, leaving Edmund and his two sisters with their mother, Clarnell. Mm. After the divorce, she relocated with her children to a town in Montana called Helena. Edmund also described that this point in his life with moving and everything was really, really especially hellish. Now that her husband was gone, Clarnell was really, really, really unleashing on Edmund. Oh, yeah, because now dad is checked out to go pick up some milk. And Edmund reminds her of him, evidently. That was his own theory. So it's like he really, you know, started getting even more hell at this point. Okay. Clarnell's alcoholism got way worse. She continued to humiliate and belittle Edmund, making it a point also to specifically tell him that he was nothing but a giant freak and a monster and no woman would ever love him. Like, yeah, this is the kind of shit she was saying to him. She belittled Edmund 
amongst many things. But also, I mentioned earlier, he was tall. Like, Edmund fucking Kemper was huge. Like, when when everything happened and he got, you know, arrested, he was six foot nine. When he was in between the ages of, like, 13, 15, he was already, like, six foot four, six foot five. Oh, my God. So, she mocked him and belittled him for all of that and then would specifically add on the note, oh, oh yeah, like, women are never going to love you, by the way. Like, take a long walk off a short pier, bitch. Yeah, because- like, absolutely. Like, get fucked with a cactus. <laughs> Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) This is the kind of shit that she was saying to him every day, all day, all the time. And she also continued locking him in the basement out of fear that he would hurt his sisters. She would continuously scream at him and call him names, just all kinds of really horrible shit. And it really does make me feel bad for him, at least younger him, because I have no pity or excuse or sympathy in my brain for what he does later. But it's sad. Yeah. And that is, I'm saying, I'm sorry, it's a huge part of Edmund Kemper's pathology. Like, you look at this shit and how it plays out into his character, and it's like, oh my god. Like, yeah. again, <gasps> fuck you, Carnell. <laughs> I bring back that same point that Edmund Kemper the child was not Edmund Kemper the brutal serial killer. So you're probably going to hear me say that point several times. I feel like it's a good one to make here. <laughs> So back where I left off before I went on that tangent there, uh, Edmund's having a really horrific time at home. They had moved to Montana. He's getting used to a new location. His dad's gone. He's getting particularly more unleashed upon by Clarnell. He's just not doing good. He's starting to harbor some pretty severe hatred for his mother. Yeah. And all of this combined, he finally reaches a breaking point. And right before he turned 15 years old in the fall of 1963, he hopped on a bus back to California to reconnect with his father. Edmund's father had remarried a German woman and was living a whole new life with a new family, pretty much. Oh, great. Now. Edmund's got to be like, well, fuck me. Pretty fucking much. So the arrangement did not work out really well at all for Edmund. He did stay at his dad's house for a little bit, but ultimately his dad kicked him out due to the stress that his new wife was complaining about in regards to Edmund. Mm -hmm. She was telling Edmund's father that she was having migraines as a result of how stressed she was due to Edmund being there and some of the behaviors that he was displaying. It was evidently really creeping her out. I couldn't find anything specifically that listed what this stress exactly was. There was one source that I read that said Edmund had like pulled like a peeping Tom move on her and like he was creepily watching her undress and she caught him and it just really creeped her out but again i can't really prove that to be fact that's just Ooh. one source that i found but it is kind of safe to say that you look at other behavior that edmund is displaying you know he's 15 at this point so i mean i can't really say that i believe he wasn't not acting in a way that would probably make her uncomfortable you know so all of this ultimately resulted in edmund being kicked out uh, his father took him to North Fork, California to live with his paternal grandparents on their farm. Hodge cows, hodge and chickens. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually read one source, too, about Edmund's father going to drop him off that this was around like the holidays. Mm-hmm. So the plan was Edmund and his father and his new wife and everyone go load up to see his grandparents, which were his dad's parents. Okay. And this was going to be just a few day trip to see, you know, family for the holidays and they were going to come back. They didn't tell Edmund, however, that they were just going to drop him off, though. What? He was just dumped on his grandparents. They pretty much were like, oh, well, here you go, kid. Uh, good luck. And they just left. Well, 
fuck? This situation was not ideal for Edmund either. Again, you can probably imagine the intense feelings of like abandonment and all that other, you know, dark shit that's festering inside of him. This did not help. Edmund stated that his grandmother reminded him a lot of his actual mother. And that's like, oh, fuck. Uh, Definitely not good. From the information I've stated so far, you can gather that it's probably not the best connection for Edmund to be reminded of his mother. Edmund's grandmother was evidently also very authoritarian, very verbally and emotionally abusive. You know, everything that Edmund hated. So he grew to hate her as well. Very much so. So it runs on both sides of the family. Fucking clearly. At one point after Edmund had moved in with them, Edmund's grandfather had given him a 22 caliber rifle to shoot rabbits with, like around the farm and stuff. He wasn't really allowed to have friends over. He couldn't go to social things at his school. He literally couldn't do anything. He was confined to a farm and a rifle. Mm-hmm. His granddad just basically gave him this shotgun to entertain himself to, you know, shoot some critters around the farm. Good old Southern shit. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to jump ever so slightly forward in time to the day of August 27th, 1964. Edmund was 15 and he had been living at this farm with his grandparents for about eight months at this point. Edmund and his grandmother got into a really, 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 really heated argument. I couldn't find anything exactly about what the argument was about, but it got pretty fucking intense. I think one source that I read stated that his grandmother had told Edmund to stop, like, shooting birds and other animals because Edmund was just, you know, he didn't have anything else to do, so he just went out shooting. And one source did say that the argument was started because she was basically getting on his ass about him shooting everything, and this evidently made Edmund very angry. I mean, you left the kid unsupervised with a rifle. I mean, I'm telling you, it just, you know, information as it is. That's one source that stated his grandmother was just like, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't fucking shoot everything. And Edmund, it just, it just made Edmund really, 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 really angry. So angry, in fact, that he went and got this rifle. And as his grandmother was sitting at the kitchen table, Edmund shot her one time in the head and twice in the back. (gasps) Yeah, he literally shot his grandmother to death. Um, she was a illustrator and author for children's books. So I read that she was literally sitting at the table, you know, writing or coloring or, you know, doing something. And when Edmund shot her in the head, she just slumped over and just hit the table. And then he shot her twice in the back. Sorry, I needed a forklift to pick my job off the floor. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, Edmund's grandfather was out of the house grocery shopping. So Edmund's grandfather wasn't even present for this. He had just killed his grandmother and his granddad's out of the house. So Edmund waited until his grandfather got home. Then he grabbed the rifle, went outside, and as his grandfather was in the driveway getting out of his truck, Edmund shot him to death in the driveway, right then and there. Oh, my God. Edmund later said that the reason he gave for killing his grandfather later was that he wanted to protect him from seeing and knowing that his wife was dead. Edmund's- oh, God. Yeah, Edmund said that he didn't want to put his grandfather through that. He basically was like, I'm just going to put him out of his misery. I can't bear for him to know his wife's dead. But the reason he gave for shooting his grandmother was he just wanted to shoot his grandmother and see what it would be like to shoot his grandmother. Oh, my God. So pay attention here on that note of how he looks at men in his life and how he looks at women. Like, that's deep. And it's a very alarming note because, again, he was 15 and he had just shot both of his grandparents to death. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Now, after he had shot both of his grandparents, 
Edmund called his mom. Of all people, he called his mom. Oh, well, great. And he basically, you know, he rang up Clarnell and was like, uh, hey, I just shot grandpa and grandma. What do I do? And she tells him that he needs to call the police. She's like, Edmund, if you don't if you don't call them, I'm going to call them. So Edmund does just that. He hangs up with Clarnell and he calls the police and tells them that he has shot his grandparents. And then he waits on the porch for them to get there. He was arrested immediately. Oh, my God. So after this arrest, Edmund was evaluated by a psychiatrist, and he was initially diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, and he was sent to Atascadero State Hospital for the criminally insane. While there, Edmund seemed to be doing really, really well, though. He was considered an ideal patient. It was determined later, however, that he actually wasn't a paranoid schizophrenic. The psychiatrist came to the conclusion after spending time with him that this whole incident of him shooting his grandparents was just a case of like displaced rage meant for his mom, but he like unleashed it on, you know, someone else. Right. So yeah, the psychiatrist has concluded he thinks that it's just this is a result of all of the built up rage that he's endured from the treatment of his mom. Edmund actually had a reputation for being extremely kind and cooperative, and he eventually even ended up becoming a personal assistant for the psychiatrist that worked at Atascadero. Oh my god. And now get this shit. Okay. So they had also given Edmund an IQ test and his IQ was one fucking 45. Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. That's like Albert Einstein ish IQ. Like, not many people are that just brilliant. Like, he was literally a fucking genius, like a genius. The whole him being a genius thing, like, really shows later. So keep that in mind. This kid has a fucking IQ of 145. Edmund continued to do really, really well and he made friends with all of the doctors and all of the psychiatrists that were working at Atascadero. They actually at one point started entrusting Edmund to perform psychiatric evaluations on other patients. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm fucking serious. He had complete access to all of the tests. He was giving the test. He was helping. He literally had access to all of this. It's fucking wild. And what's even more wild, if not terrifying about this whole scenario, is that Edmund took advantage of the information that he had access to while he was acting as an assistant. Edmund started studying all the different criteria for various diagnoses, such as schizophrenia, psychopathy, psychosis, borderline personality disorder, all of it. He was studying the questions that patients would get asked during their evaluations, and he was studying the answers that needed to be given to be deemed sane. Oh, my God. Like, isn't that terrifying? He literally studied so he knew what to say to seem sane. He took advantage of all of this. He studied extremely fucking well, too, because in 1969, just five years after he had gotten convicted and sentenced for shooting his grandparents to death, a then 21-year-old Edmund Kemper was released due to good behavior. They labeled him as low risk. No. These people at Atascadero really thought that they had cured Edmund Kemper. And man, like, man, that was far from the truth. After Edmund's release, all of the doctors had recommended that he specifically not go live with Clarnell, you know, his mom, (laughs) because obvious fucking reasons due to the past abuse and the negative effect that his mom had on him. But Edmund didn't really have anywhere else to go. You know, he had been locked up for the last five years. So shockingly, he was released into his mother's custody. Jesus. 
She had relocated to Santa Cruz for a job that she was offered at the University of California. This wasn't a permanent arrangement, however. Edmund did end up moving out and getting a roommate in Alameda, California. Mm -hmm. His mom was still very much a part of his life, though, unfortunately. He would kind of, like, go back and forth. Like, he would live with his mom. They had a roommate. If he ran out of money or something, he would come back to her. Like, she always stayed a part of his life, you know, so keep that in mind. Around the time Edmund was released, he was experiencing a whole new world when he got out. You know, like from 1964 to 1969, the world had definitely blossomed and changed a bit. You had the age of Aquarius happening. People are becoming hippies. Women are claiming their independence and going to college. It's just, it's a lot. Yeah. But what Edmund noticed and loved the most about this new world that he was in was the booming of young women, mainly co-eds, that were hitchhiking all over Santa Cruz. Oh, my God. My stomach just fell. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's only going to continue to drop. So, A year or two after he had gotten out of Atascadero, there was an incident where Edmund was riding his motorcycle and he actually got hit by a fucking car. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. This accident actually damaged his arm pretty bad. So he ended up suing the driver of the car that hit him for $15,000. And he was awarded that money. He promptly used that money to get himself a car. He bought a yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy. This was the door opening for him, basically, to delve into his dark fantasies. He had copious amounts of money, a new car, and newfound freedom, in a sense. So what does Edmund Kemper do with this? He starts practicing, picking up hitchhikers around the campus where his mother worked. He started perfecting his methods, per se. Oh, my God. On May 7th, 1972, Edmund picked up two Fresno State University co-eds from Berkeley, California. Oh, no. They were hitchhiking and looking for a ride back to Stanford University campus. It was about a 40-mile drive. Their names were Marianne Pesh and Anita Luchessa. They were both 18 years old. After Edmund had drove them around for a bit, he pulled off the highway, taking them down like a secluded like dirt road right outside of Alameda, California. Mm-hmm. He handcuffed Marianne to the back seat then grabbed Anita and locked her in the trunk. Oh, my God. Edmund attempted to suffocate Marianne with a bag, and let me tell you, this bitch bit through the bag like she was fighting him. Like, Oh, my God. Holy oh my shit. God, oh Keep in God. mind, Edmund Kemper's like six foot fucking eight, almost 300 pounds, and she's fucking fighting him. She bit through this bag, but unfortunately, Edmund then took out this knife that he had concealed on him, and he brutally stabbed 18-year-old Marianne Pesh to death. He slit her throat open completely from ear to ear while her best friend Anita was in the trunk listening. Oh my fucking God. Edmund later mentioned when he was asked about, you know, his first killing, Marianne and Anita. He said that like the whole he expected stabbing to be much cleaner. He's like, you know, in the movies you stab someone and they die, but that wasn't the case. I was horrified. Like I just kept stabbing and she wouldn't die and blood. And he said it really shook him up nonetheless. And it was really, 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 really messy. Really shook him up. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, blown. I'm fucking blown right now i have no words yeah no, no words. it's absolutely fucking crazy another note i want to mention too about his killing of marianne pesk and anita luchessa when he was stabbing marianne to death um i was watching an interview with edmund and this goes to show like his sexual immaturity even though he was like 21 years old at the time mm-hmm. he apologized to marianne in mid attack stabbing her to death for touching her breast like oh i'm fucking sorry like that's that's embarrassing i apologize as he's stabbing her to death that's like something a 15 year old would do it's like oh boobs like oh my god i'm sorry but yeah 
Edmund evidently apologized to Marianne because he touched her breast. A very immature reaction. So a little bit of an insight to how Edmund's brain's working. Jeez. Now, Anita Lucessa was in the trunk this entire time. She literally was alive in the trunk and had probably heard Edmund just brutally fucking kill her best friend. So after Marianne was dead, Edmund opened up the trunk covered in blood and Anita was like, you know, what the fuck is going on with Marianne? Like, what's happening? And Edmund tells her, you see, your friend, she got smart with me and I think I broke her nose. You need to see if she's okay. He even makes it a point to say to Anita, yeah, you know, your friend, she really did get smart with me. And for the record, I didn't hit her. Like, what, Edmund? Like, you stabbed her over and over and filleted her fucking throat open, but you didn't hit her? Like, literally, that's his uh, logic. He said that. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Like, I am just literally sitting here in a stupor with my mouth open. So when he went to kill Anita, he ultimately strangled and stabbed her to death. Edmund then put both the girls in his trunk and drove back to the apartment he was staying in. Now get this shit. Okay. He got pulled over. For a fucking busted taillight. The police did not search Edmund's car. Edmund Kemper got pulled over by police with two dead bodies in his trunk. And they let him go. Are you fucking... Oh my god. He had literally just brutally killed Marianne Pesh and Anita Luchessa. And got pulled over for his headlight. And their bodies were in his trunk. And they did not search him. They let him go. Bitch, I feel like Sally Fields from Mrs. Doubtfire, like, the whole time, the whole time, the whole time! Yes, like, isn't that fucking insane? Yeah. Now, I want to mention, too, a note with this. Edmund, he was kind of friends with all the cops. Like, the cops knew Edmund as, like, the gentle giant. There was a bar called the Jury Room, and it was kind of a get-together hangout spot for all the cops to go and hang out after their work day and, you know, drink and talk about cases. Well, Edmund always went up there to hang out with them. And talked to a lot of them, and all of the police really, really loved Edmund. So the cop that pulled him over on this occasion he was just a him. was just a friend. And Edmund's this gentle giant, and he's, uh, hey, how are you doing? Hey, Edmund, how are you? All right, you can go. Yeah, he had two dead bodies in his trunk. Oh my god! After Edmund arrived back at his apartment, he took the bodies of both Marianne and Anita inside. This is where he decapitated and dismembered both Marianne and Anita Lucessa. He raped both of their decapitated corpses and their severed heads and placed their parts inside plastic bags. He threw Marianne and Anita's head into a ravine, and then he scattered their remaining body parts all over the place in various locations. It was a few months later that the head of Marianne Pesh was found by police. She was identified by dental records. The rest of Marianne's body, as well as the entirety of Anita Lucessa's body, were never found. I have no words. I have no fucking words. I literally just want to say that I... It's a first for me. I have never been this speechless in my life. Yeah, it's like he was a scary motherfucker. Like Edmund Kemper was truly fucking scary. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm, I'm even feeling uncomfortable just sitting here. Yeah, same, honestly. So, like I said, the rest of Marianne's body, as well as the entirety of Anita Luchessa's body, were never, ever found. They were never recovered. After his first two victims, Edmund goes back to just giving girls rides and not killing them for a while, refining his technique a little more. If you remember earlier, I said that he started practicing picking up hitchhikers. Yeah, and that's... Practice the practicing. He would he would like, practice picking them up, talking to them, getting comfortable with them. He would give them rides to wherever they wanted. You know, he didn't kill them. He was just practicing his. You know, I'm saying you can trust me. 
yeah. gig. And it's fucking, it's, it's wild. Like, can you imagine there are women out there that can say they got a fucking ride from Edmund Kemper and lived? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that fucking insane to think about? Yeah. So he goes back to this for a little bit, just picking up the girls and deciding against killing them. This didn't last long, however. On September 14th, 1972, Edmund Kemper picked up his third victim. Her name was Aiko Koo, and she was a 15-year-old Korean ballet dancer. She was looking for a ride to her dance class because she had missed her bus. Edmund picked her up and almost immediately pulled a gun out on her to scare her. He was telling this 15-year-old girl about how he wanted to just fucking kill himself and wanted her to bear witness. Like, what a piece of shit. Like, he's telling this girl, like, I actually just want to kill myself. I just want you to watch. She's 15. Like, what an absolute piece of shit. So, at gunpoint, he drives 15-year-old Aikoku to a secluded wooded area. He gets out of his car and get this shit. He realizes that he had locked himself out of the car. Oh my fucking god. His keys, his gun, and Aiko are inside. Oh my fucking god. Now get this horrific shit. He somehow convinced her to unlock the fucking car door. He convinced her to unlock the door and let him in. A sociopath of the highest fucking order. Like, what kind of fucking charm is this? Because she literally had the gun, the keys, and he was locked out. She literally could have fucked him up, you know? I mean, given, I don't know how I would react in that situation, but it's just like that fact of that Edmund had locked all of his shit inside the car with her and he convinced her to open the door. After pulling a gun on her and taking her to a secluded wooded area, he convinced her to open the door. I'm sorry. That's like the white girl in the horror movies that runs upstairs. Right. You know? Like, it's sad. It's like fucking insane. Like, the charm. Like, what the fuck could he have said to convince her to open up the door. It's just fucking wild. So Edmund gets back into the car and he immediately starts trying to suffocate Aiko by placing his fingers up her nose at first. But this method was not really efficient. So, and she was kind of fighting him back too. So Edmund ended up strangling Aiko to death with the scarf she was wearing on her neck. And then Edmund brutally raped her corpse, threw her body into the trunk and went and grabbed a beer with the boys at the jury room. Okay. Okay, uh, my asshole is missing. It went through my stomach so fast. Yeah. 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 He's literally yeah. at a bar, her body's in his trunk. Gage, my, my stomach shot out of my asshole with such velocity. <laughs> <laughs> After a few hours of drinking, he takes Aiko's body back to his apartment. And just like he did with Marianne Pesh and Anita Luchessa, Edmund decapitates and dismembers Aiko, then brutally rapes her severed head and dismembered body parts. <laughs> now, wait, 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 wait. If I haven't blown you away already, then I'm definitely about to again. This goes to show that Edmund Kemper was fucking beyond. Okay. The next day, after murdering and dismembering Iko, he puts her severed head in a plastic bag and puts it in his car that he takes to his court-mandated psychiatric appointment that next day. Her head was in his fucking car while he went in to see a psychiatrist, and it was at this appointment that he was deemed to be not a threat to himself or others. Not just one, but two psychiatrists at his appointment referred to him as a very well-adjusted young man. And after this, his juvenile record where he shot his grandparents to death was sealed. He had a severed head in his car. Oh my 
God. After this, Edmund disposed of Iko's head and other body parts and unknown various locations. No remains of Ikoku were ever found. I'm just, I'm nauseated. Now, it's not long after this that the authorities start giving warnings to the students, especially the co-eds. Marianne Peshin and Anita Luchessa were both college students, so they're giving warning to pretty much everybody to like, hey, you know, hitchhiking's kind of popular too back then. They're like, don't get into the car with anybody that doesn't have a university sticker like on their windshield, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this didn't bother Edmund Kemper at all. Not one bit, actually. You want to know why? Because he already had one of these university stickers on his car that he had gotten from his mother, who worked at the University of California. Oh, my God. And I assume around this time as well that he ran out of money. Like, if you remember me saying he had gotten that $15,000 when he was hit by a car on his motorcycle. Right. So... I say that I assume he ran out of money because it was around this time that Edmund moved back into his mother's house again. Mm-hmm. So wonderful choice. Great job. Great job. Uh, not too long after he moved back in with his mom, he went out and bought himself a 22 caliber pistol. In Edmund's own words, he said that he went, quote, bananas after he got it. And he was telling the truth on that one because on January 7th, 1973, he claimed the life of his fourth victim, 19-year-old Cindy Shaw. She was hitchhiking, and unfortunately, she accepted a ride from Edmund Kemper. He took her to a secluded wooded area close by and shot her in the head. He put her body in the trunk. He took her back to his mom's house, put her in the tub, and decapitated and dismembered Cindy Shaw's body with an axe. This shit is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> Edmund then violently raped her severed head and other body parts. Oh, God. Edmund actually kept Sydney's head in his room for a little while. Over the period of the few days after killing her, he raped the severed head for about a week repeatedly. And then when he was done with it, he ended up disposing of it by burying Sydney's head in his mother's backyard garden. And he pointed the head facing up at his mother's bedroom window. Later, when asked about this, Edmund said, quote, my mother always wanted people to look up to her, end quote. Oh, my God. Edmund disposed of the rest of Sydney's body by throwing her off the cliff into the ocean. And another note that I would like to make, too, that's just fucking crazy. It goes to show how smart he is. Unfortunately, he actually removed the bullet from Sydney Shaw's skull before putting her body into the trunk and then taking her home to dismember her because he knew that bullet would be something that could identify him. Wow. Sydney's remains were found only 20 days after she was reported missing by her family when her torso, as well as other body parts, washed up on a beach near Santa Cruz coastline. Oh, God. On February 5th, 1973, less than a month after Edmund had murdered Sydney, he claimed his fifth and sixth victims. He had just had a really, really bad fight with his mom. He was pretty fucking pissed, so he left the house. Eventually, he picked up two U.S. Santa Cruz students. 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 21-year-old Alice Liu. Edmund picked them both up on campus. After they both got into his car, he immediately shot both of them in the head. Uh. When Edmund went to leave the campus with these two bodies in his back seat, oh yeah, like, he picked them up again on campus and then shot them on campus. He immediately shot them as soon as they got into the car. So as he's going to leave the campus with these two bodies in his back seat, he had to go through campus security to get let out. Now get this fucking shit. He had put a blanket over their bodies and he told the security guard that they were drunk and he was taking them home. Oh my God. The guard let him pass through. Again, 
coming in contact with authority with dead bodies in his car. Like, do these people not, like, see through the window and see there's a bunch of blood? Or- I guess not. At least in the case with Rosalind and Alice, he put a blanket over them, uh, allegedly. So, I mean, they bought it. I'm... And I'm then just when he so got angry, and then when point. he got pulled over in the beginning by his, you know, one of his cop friends, when he had Marianne Pesh and Anita dead in his trunk, like literally, if they would have opened that trunk, they just would have seen As two bodies. dead girls. Yeah, exactly. Like, isn't that fucking crazy? So Edmund made it past security and made it on back to his mother's house. Mm-hmm. When Edmund arrived back at his mother's house, he parked his car in the driveway, opened the trunk, and in full view. Out in the open, like in the fucking driveway, he decapitated both Rosalind and Alice. In the driveway? Yeah, in the driveway. If if you just happened to be walking past his driveway that night, like you were a passerby, you literally would have seen a seven-foot-tall man with his trunk open sawing the heads off of two women. Oh, no, no, no. I ain't seen shit. You last longer. Yeah, that's what I'm like, right? Like, isn't that just fucking crazy? Yeah, that that's nuts. In his fucking driveway, like, literally, again, if you would have been walking past his driveway, you would have seen him removing the heads of these I two mean, girls. I mean, they say that the best place to hide is in plain sight, and apparently, that's so. He didn't get caught. Right. He literally didn't get caught. It's crazy. After several days of repeatedly raping the severed heads and bodies of Rosalind and Alice, Edmund scattered their parts in various remote locations around Santa Cruz. Not long after the girls had been reporting missing, police found two female torsos in a canyon near Castro Valley. They had been thrown over a cliff, and sadly, they were later identified to be the torsos of both Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Lou. So crazy shit. Yeah. Now... Edmund Kemper's last two victims were his own mother, Clarnell Kemper, and her best friend, Sally Hallett. It was Good Friday, April 20th, 1973. Edmund had another really bad fight with his mom. She left and she had went out drinking for a bit, and Edmund stayed behind at the house, stewing in his anger. Mm. When she returned home, she was a little tipsy and she ended up going to bed. Edmund waited until she was asleep. Then he grabbed a claw hammer, went into her bedroom, sat and stared at her for two to three minutes, and then beat her skull in while she slept. He also filleted her throat open with a knife. Oh, fuck. Actually, I think it would just be best if I let Edmund himself describe this to you in his own words. So I'm going to insert that for you guys now. Oh, no. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out, I walked up to her bed, she's laying there reading a paperback, as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her, I said, no, I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her, you know. And I'm so cold, it's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard, I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina, see. I came out of my mother. 
and in a rage, I went right back in. Edmund had decapitated his mother and repeatedly raped her severed head. After doing this for several hours, he then displays his mother's head and just screams at it for hours and hours, yelling at the top of his lungs, like flipping his shit, screaming. He also used her severed head as a dartboard. Like he was throwing darts and screaming at her, like, this is fucking beyond. Edmund had also cut the tongue and larynx out of his mother's head, so like her vocal cords, essentially, and he tried to put them down the garbage disposal. This didn't really work, though, because the disposal just kept spitting the pieces back out at Edmund. He quoted saying, I felt that was appropriate, as much as she had bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years, end quote. After this, he brutally raped his mom's decapitated body. He hid her in a closet and went out for a few drinks. Okay, fluff fact. Fluff fact. Fluff fact. Fluff fact. fact. Hello, beautiful. You're super brave and we appreciate you listening. Today, I'm bringing you a fluff fact. A fluff fact being something we use to defuse a situation when we're talking about something that's a wee bit too intense for us. Today's fluff fact is about our beautiful home state of Georgia. Did you know the two most fun things to do if you're visiting Georgia is to have a heat stroke and get bit by a water moccasin. Thanks for listening. Back to the case. Later, when he returned home, he called his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sally Hallett, and invited her over to the house to eat dinner. Within seconds of her entering the home, Edmund attacked her. He strangled her to death decapitated her and raped her headless body he then also put her into a closet stole her car and took off he started just driving he made it all the way to pueblo colorado when he stopped at a payphone to call police and confess like he drove for like three days straight wow at first police are like yeah right edmund like you feeling okay buddy like you know keep in mind edmund was friends with the cops he had hung out with them and talked often you know they just knew him he had this reputation for being gentle and he was just light right right they didn't believe edmund at all when he first started telling them what he had done to his mother and her friend he actually ended up hanging up calling back and asking for a cop that he was on closer terms with and he was like Edmund was like, no, I actually did this. This isn't a joke. And to make police understand the seriousness in his words, he said, I didn't just murder my mother and her friend. I've also been the one killing all the co-eds over the past two years, too. I am the co-ed butcher. Oh, God. He started giving giving police grisly details regarding the murder, like things only the killer would know. So police came after him. I would like to point out with this that Edmund Kemper did not get caught. He confessed. As in... If he hadn't called police confessing to the murders of his mom and her best friend, as well as the co-eds that had gone missing over the previous two years, he never would have gotten caught. That is fucking scary. In late April 1973, Edmund Kemper was apprehended by police. He was 24 years old. That's so crazy. So young. When asked why he turned himself in, he said, the purpose was gone. I had finally killed my mother and I didn't need to do this anymore. Oh, like this wow. whole thing was about his mom. It's like real frozen. You look at what he did to all of his victims, how he was displacing that rage against his mother onto these women. He's thinking of the worst possible thing that he could do to his mother, which he did to all of these victims. But his worst crime was for his fucking mother. Yeah. Again, that whole nature versus nurture argument here. Like, <clears throat> do I believe that something in Edmund was there? 
that was brought out by the significant abuse he endured. I mean, sure, but you can't look at this case and look at him and say that his mom and what he went through did not contribute to this. Oh, no, it absolutely did. Edmund Kemper was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder. When he was found guilty, he actually asked the judge specifically if he could be put to death by torture. What? But at the time of Kemper's conviction, there was a moratorium on the death penalty in California. So instead, he got seven consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He was to serve those concurrently. Edmund was then placed in the California Medical Facility in Vacaville where he's still there today at 73 years old, serving the remainder of his sentence. Oh, my God. And another wild fucking fact that I want to throw in about Edmund Kemper, like after his incarceration, he's actually recorded over 500 books, like audibly, like narrating them over tape for blind people. So you can literally go and listen to Edmund fucking Kemper read books. Mm, Yep. No, don't think I'll be listening. Thanks. And that concludes the case of the co-ed butcher, Edmund Kemper. I got so uncomfortable. Like, it, and the uncomfortableness, if that's a word, uncomfortableness was like <laughs> growing and growing and growing and growing until I felt, I literally, when I called for a fluff fact, I felt like there was this huge not my stomach it was just yeah kind of that's how it was when we did the ripper crew like there's just some things that just gets too much you know yeah yeah and edmund kemper he you know people can't at me for this but i think everybody has a favorite serial killer like if you say you don't i think you're lying but um i think edmund kemper is mine for a number of different reasons like a it's like everything i said in the beginning you now have a little bit of context he was fucking beyond yeah. Six foot nine, brilliant fucking genius fucking IQ. Like, it's really sad that people like this end up getting those kinds of brains. Cause, like, think about what he could have done for the world or himself if he could have, you know, maybe not given into the part of his psyche that implored him to brutally fucking kill women. Right. It's just insane. Like, he's truly one that fascinates me and scares me to my fucking core. Like, I just, I I had to do it. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a case that will stick with me for sure. (laughs) Is it safe to say that we're going to go binge cartoons? Watch cartoons, yes. yes. So we definitely appreciate you listening, guys. Thanks for sticking through with us. We appreciate and love you. If you would like to follow us on any of our social media platforms, you can. Find us at Twitter. At Gore Report. On Facebook. At Gore Report, a true crime podcast. And on Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And also, don't forget, you guys, uh, we need succulent name suggestions uh, for Ray. So send those in any way you like. We'd be glad to have them. And we will be back next week with a case from Ray. All right. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye.